Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the structures of propaganda, from misreported stats and cover-ups to propagandistic opinion articles and police procedurals that flood the pop culture landscape. Clips today are from Counterspin, Serious Inquiries Only, Novara Media, Democracy Now!, Citations Needed, and Who, What, Why?, New York Times readers have seen a couple of stories recently about a reported rise in the country's murder rate. Among the top driving forces, readers were told, quote, increased distrust between the police and the public after the murder of George Floyd, including a pullback by the police in response to criticism. Close quote. But reference to the unsupported, inflammatory so-called Ferguson effect is only one of the problems with the Times reporting here, which sparked a thoughtful Twitter thread by our next guest. A former civil rights lawyer and public defender, Alec Karikatsanis, is founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps and author of the book Usual Cruelty, the Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Alec Karakatsanis. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there's some overlap in the problems in the September 22nd story bylined Jeff Asher and then the September 27th Neil McFarquhar piece on what's called a murder spike in cities across the U.S. But maybe start with Asher's as it originally ran, because that's relevant. What was so wrong and so troubling about that report? There are a number of concerns. I think that the most obvious and simple concern to highlight first is that Asher has a long history, first working at the CIA, then working sort of covertly with Palantir, the CIA venture capital-backed tech firm that works with police departments, military and defense contractors, and also uh, ICE and and other uh, sort of carceral entities on a wide range of both public and secret programs. And then he went on to found a, what appears to be a lucrative sort of private consulting business where he worked for the New Orleans Police Department and, and Palantir together on, on a very controversial secret program that even many elected officials in New Orleans didn't know about. And then he consulted for the prosecutor's office in New Orleans. None of this history or these conflicts of interest, both financial and journalistic, were even mentioned by the Times, who allowed him a column in, in the upshot section of the Times as if he were some kind of neutral data expert, just mm-hmm. telling people about objective, neutral data about crime in the United States. That's a first problem. Yeah. The second problem is just Asher repeats many of the problems that we see in Times coverage generally. Wild speculation about the connection between police and things like murders. It reminds me a lot of climate denial back in the 90s and early 2000s. It reminds me a lot of the coverage leading up to the Iraq war. Things are just asserted. And because they're just asserted commonly every single day in paper after paper and news outlet after news outlet, things can become normalized. And what would be a radical anti-science fringe view that let the police determine murder rates. By the way, you know, the scientific consensus is pretty overwhelming. Things like murder rates and harm in our society are much more correlated with poverty, inequality, mental illness, drug addiction, lack of access to decent health care and housing and jobs, 
lack of social cohesion, and in particular, toxic masculinity is, is one that's often left out of these explanations. But a lot of violence is intimate partner violence committed by men. And none of these things are things that the police are connected with. And in fact, almost all of them are things that over the course of the last hundred years, police have systematically organized to prevent progressive social change in each one of these areas of crushing and infiltrating and surveilling every major social movement for justice. None of that background is given in any of these time pieces. You're sort of told that the murder rate is skyrocketing, and, and Asher used a number of very misleading graphs to make people think that murder is extraordinarily high when it's at near 30, 40, 50-year lows. Even though there was an increase in murder during the beginning of the global pandemic, which caused a lot of mental health issues in people, and there's many other explanations. But the bigger context is that it's just seen as totally normal in the New York Times and in the media generally to talk about murder and then right away pivot to talking about explanations that deal with the police when we all know that things that correlate with murder are things that are much more profound features of our society. Well, and one of the ways that they create that just implicit understanding that more police equals less crime. First, crime's very scary, and the response is more police. Well, it has to do with who they talk to, right? Who gets to speak in the context of the reporting. One of the stunning things about both Asher's piece and the piece by Neil McFarquhar, which in many ways was worse, because not only did it quote almost exclusively police and police-paid consultants, but it also then quoted Asher as an expert on this issue without, again, noting any of his conflicts of interest. Just several days after Asher himself had written that problematic article in The Times, I think one of the really key things that you never see in this reporting is an acknowledgement that the concept of crime is sort of defined and constructed by police and other elite interests in our society. So, for example, police crime data on which all of these articles are based does not include the crimes committed by the police. And in my analysis of these studies and in using what I think are reasonable estimates, I think if you actually included the crimes committed by police, it would entirely reverse the crime trends in most major U.S. cities. That's just one very minor example other things that are just not included here are the several hundred thousand violations of the Clean Water Act every single year. They're not reported in local crime data. Wage theft, fraudulent overdraft fees by banks. You know, wage theft alone by corporate employers dwarfs all burglary, theft, shoplifting, and all property crimes combined by a factor of about five. So we're talking about 50 to $100 billion a year in wage theft. It's not treated as a crime. It's not reported in local crime data. It's not part of a so-called crime surge narrative. And so I could give you, you know, and I have in some of my writing, hundreds of these kinds of examples right. of what the police count as crime and what they don't. Right. And you're never really provided that kind of context and background when the New York Times talks about things like a crime wave. One of the lines in the McFarquhar piece that stood out to me was he says, some argue that the police, under intense scrutiny and demoralized, pulled back from some aspects of crime prevention. Others put the emphasis on the public, suggesting that diminished respect for the police prompted more people to try to take the law into their own hands. Now, when I read that, I hear either black people need police to protect them from themselves or black people need police to protect them from themselves. It's presented as, it's a range of views here, but, uh, you know, it's not really a range of perspectives, and there are a lot of perspectives missing from that. Absolutely. I mean, it's a classic media technique 
which you know, I think is described really beautifully in Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. If you make people think that there are two sides having a very reasonable debate. And by limiting the debate to those two views and excluding everything else from the debate, you make it seem like there's a very narrow range of views. And all reasonable people either think that the police are a really great crime prevention tool and that they've pulled back from that in the last year, or that civil rights criticism of the police is what's causing the uptick in murders. And I think it's fascinating to think about what's going on in the heads of these journalists. I know because I've corresponded with McFarquhar, although he's never responded to any of my attempts to ask him questions about his prior journalism, but I know that he knows there are other views. And so when a journalist writes something like, some people say this, but others say that, but then excludes what they know many, many, many other people, including every rigorous scientist who studies the causes and underlying nature of crime, you have to wonder, what is the agenda there? And, and, and that's why I thought it was particularly striking that McFarquhar and the editors chose not to disclose some of the conflicts of interest that the experts they were citing had. And I know that Jeff Asher just blocked you when you tried to uh, communicate with him or engage with him about his piece. Well, I, I did want to give you a chance finally, although the time is inadequate, but also in that McFarquhar piece was the claim. And it had been in the earlier piece, but got maybe taken out on a second version. But there was the claim sourced to a, an officer, a particular law enforcement officer. He cited what they called the revolving jailhouse door created by bail reform as a factor driving up violence. And again, there was a tacked on, but others differ at the end of that sentence. But the sentence, the statement of the sentence was that law enforcement believe that the revolving jailhouse door created by bail reform is a problem here. So in our remaining couple of minutes, can you address some of the mythology around bail reform? There is so much wrong with that. It's hard to know where to start. First, <laughs> It's asserted that there's this revolving jailhouse door. And then what he says there's a dispute about is whether the revolving jailhouse door has led to more crime. Now, I, I just want to note, I don't even know what a revolving jailhouse door is, but it, it highlights one of the key ways in which media furthered mass incarceration by creating this imagery of like an out of control, super predator class. This vivid imagery like um, a crime wave right, is designed to make people feel like there's this overwhelming force coming at them. The same is true with revolving door. What is the point of using a metaphor like that? It doesn't actually accurately describe anything about what's going on in the legal system. There's no evidence or support or description given for what's meant by that. What they're actually referring to is that in some places, consistent with all of the empirical evidence, which shows that detaining people prior to their trial in cages, just because they can't make a monetary payment, actually increases crime by huge margins for years in the future because it makes people more likely to commit crime by destabilizing their lives, getting them out of treatment and mental care and losing their jobs and their housing and many times losing their children. This is the scientific consensus we're talking about. Cash bail is actually really harmful to public safety. So what they're talking about is a series of very modest, pretty minor reforms which reduce the tension of very poor people solely because they can't pay. Those reforms still allow police, prosecutors, and judges to detain anyone that they prove is a danger to the community or a risk of flight or is charged with a really serious offense. So it's just also, it's so hard to know where to begin because basically every single aspect of what you just read 
from the assumptions to the assertions to the implications is just completely fabricated and not consistent at all with what's actually happening and what we know the data says about cash bail. I believe I said multiple times <laughs> that like also keep in mind, no matter when, what we're talking about when it comes to police violence, that so much of the stats that we can get access to or that anyone can who's running studies and stuff. So much of that is police reported often. And, yeah. and so much of even the news reporting will be like a reporter talked to the police who told them something. And it's like, we have should have learned unless you're somebody coming from a totally different political perspective we should have learned by now that that is just not reliable. And the big example was George Floyd, you know, that would have just been, oh, medical, medical related death. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. while in History of drug use and a heart condition. Yeah, a guy had a heart attack. You know, mm-hmm. that was how that would have been coded, reported, and uh, maybe still <laughs> was if, after we go through this article in this study. Uh, but anyway, this, you may have seen in the New York Times what we're going to talk about today which is, uh, at least that's where I saw it, a study, new study says that more than half of police killings are mislabeled and the number of police killings is basically double what you would have thought mm-hmm. it was based on how it's been reported, which, yeah, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> what we were saying. And yeah. uh, whenever there's a study involved in something, that's when we can have science person, <laughs> best science person in the world, Lindsay Osterman, to explain it to us. <laughs> Uh, that's so kind. Uh, yeah, no, this was this was a great article, this this New York Times article. And now that I've read the original study, and I went back and read the New York Times article again, like, you know, really no, no things to, to gripe about in terms of the nice, the, the writing here, it was it was quite well done. And, you know, in addition to summarizing this, the findings in this study, they're also sort of highlighting a number of these, these anecdotes, right, in which there was clearly mm-hmm. a death that was caused by police-related violence, and then it was misreported in the death certificate. So, one of the things they talk about was Elijah McLean, who was put in a chokehold, a chokehold that is now banned by most police departments. So, chokehold by police and then injected with ketamine. Ugh. And in the death certificate, the cause of death was, uh, quote, undetermined. Mm, yeah, hard to tell. I have a no few guesses. To yeah, I know. Yeah. Totally hard to get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Right. So, I think... I'm glad that they brought up those specific cases to illustrate because I think it triggers the right intuition about why um, what these researchers did in this current study really matters. It matters that these deaths are being misclassified because the cause of death on the death certificate really matters in terms of whether charges are brought. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, you know, taking the the George Floyd trial, for instance, um, I'm sure that folks who followed that remember that a lot of the defense's case leaned heavily on the medical examiner's judgment of that history of drug use and the pre-existing heart condition being contributors. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so this this matters. And there's some other um, tidbits from the article, and, and apologies if you know I don't want to scoop what you're going to talk about, but some things that caught my eye just preliminarily from the article here. Police killings have just gone up, like up and up and up when crime has gone down. Now, obviously, 2020 was, you know, a very special year. Crime did murder, uh, went up, homicide, all that um, Mm -hmm. for different reasons that I think you'll find were involved uh, due to COVID and other things going on. But that's an outlier year. Um, For the most part, crime is at all time lows. I think it's still at all time lows, uh, even relative relative to the 90s and stuff, the peak in like the early 90s or late 80s. Mm. And um even still, police killings going up. And I believe it said the 
disproportionality of the killings is also increasing, you know, like black Americans, 3.5 times as likely to be killed. So this is something that as much as the knee jerk conservative reaction is always, well, don't be a criminal. It's crime. It's like, well, okay. Crime has done nothing but go down until last year went down dramatically and police killings are going up. There is a problem here. There is definitely a problem. And the the results from the study are, are pretty compelling in that regard. As a listener of this show, there's a really good chance that the prospect of fascism has been on your mind for the past few years, but many are scared of being labeled as alarmist if they come right out and say it. Well, the Refuse Fascism podcast names it, dissects it, and connects a deep analysis of what fascism is with the ongoing methods and actions we need to stop it. Every week, host Sam Goldman, along with great guests, digs deep into what's happening in this moment and how it connects to the growth of American fascism. Just a quick look at some of their recent episodes gives you a sense of their focus. They've tackled the full frontal assault on abortion rights, highlighted the global aftermath of 9-11, and traced the roots and rise of Islamophobia. And they mix it up by getting deep into the weeds and also pulling back to get the big picture perspective. So if you like Best of Left, I think it'll be right up your alley. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org to get connected, sign up for emails, and much more. What exactly is propaganda? Casper, if you could kick us off. Oof. So I would say the um, mythology um, that is constantly shoved in our faces from a very, very young age, uh, which seeks to prove or make the case that uh, police force is necessary and more than necessary, a force for good in our lives. Um, and you see it everywhere. And as a film critic, I, you know, had uh, my fair share of all of this, this bullshit, basically. It's essentially a lie. And it's pushed at us with such regularity across so many different forms of literature and, and films, TV. It's absolutely everywhere. Ben, do you, do you have a take on what propaganda is or how it is you understand it? Yeah, I, I think Casper's no, kind of hit the nail on the head here. It is very much a sort of it's adding a sheen to like the realities of what a the kind of armed for um, one of the armed wings of the state is it's trying to sort of like make them be the nice guys the the nice bobby on the bee um it's kind of transferring that into to wider media it's it's part of a, a bigger trend towards sort of jingoism that we've been seeing growing within this country particularly of late um but as Casper says you know this isn't sort of a new thing in order to in order to continue that idea that we are we are policed by consent, propaganda and shows like propaganda uh, that propaganda shows are integral to that. They are necessary for the current status quo to continue as it is. I just very quickly also want to point out that propaganda isn't just fiction. So obviously we've got the Bill, Taggart, Rebus, Life on Mars, Law and Order, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, CSI, CSI Miami. Was there a CSI New York? Maybe there was. Um, it's not just these fictional shows that we're very familiar with. There's also non-fiction, non-scripted propaganda like uh, Live PD, Cops, and all of these kind of fly-on-the-wall documentaries where you see police going about their business, brutalizing people in a way which celebrates that kind of work. And 
I'm thinking here about propaganda, not just being something which um, comes from the world of media, but something which is deliberately engaged with and perhaps nurtured by the police. And so, Ben, I was hoping maybe you could talk a bit about this because you've had um, a lot of experience with the police, shall we say. I want to talk about this kind of police to press and back again pipeline. Just how important is favorable media coverage and having a grip on the process of mediatization to the police operationally? So I think it's it's a it's an interesting but it's a huge question. Um, so maybe if we kind of take the example of uh, every year at Pride um, for the for certainly the last sort of decade or so, what you'll get is you'll get officers marching through in you know kind of rainbow the rainbow truncheons, um, and every year there will be some kind of affected. Uh, proposal halfway through or you know cut to something like Notting Hill Carnival where you see you know cops sort of like there dancing with punters um and these things are so integral and so important to the way that the police portray themselves um as these sort of these people are just simply there to you know to, to look after us and to make sure that we're okay and it's everybody else that's the problem um but fundamentally that's not the case and I think anybody that's been watching carefully or being on any of the demos recently particularly the kind of kill the bill ones will know that that's not true i think if we look at something like what happened in bristol over the period of a week at the end of march there were three demos in bristol and the violence there enacted by the police i was there on the last one on the friday evening which was the friday after the the riot van went up and the violence that i saw was was horrendous it it was awful it was it shocked me and i would consider myself to be fairly gnarly um and fairly sort of well versed in this and i i was chatting to a pal the other day and he was like i he, he was there also and i sort of found him afterwards and he says that my face was just eyes um but the way that that was painted by the media was that it was the police who'd sustained injuries. It was the police who'd been attacked. And that's because the media and the, the cops had this sort of reciprocal arrangement where the, the cops will put something out, as they did on that Sunday night when the riot ban went up, saying two members of the, the Avon and Somerset Police Force have had their bones broken. Um, one of them has had a punctured lung. And that was the story. That was that was the big moment. And then it then transpired that that was bollocks. That was untrue. Now, a couple of weeks later, Netpol did some amazing investigatory work and found that there were 62 uh, injuries to protesters, at least across those three demos. And we're talking major, major injuries. Just from my own point of view, from what I saw, I saw people who were already very, very injured with blood all over them being clobbered again. We all saw the videos of people on the ground who looked like they were half unconscious being battered. And that's that's kind of... The way that the way that the cops can control these control these situations is is kind of two handed. That idea that when they're at these public order situations, they are friendly and they are happy, and you kind of think of them at, at carnival and you think of that, and then when it actually kicks off, they're the ones that are being aggressed at. They are the ones that are getting injured, and it's only it's only later it's only later on because the protesters don't have the access to you know the kind of big mainstream media operations that these forces do that actually the truth outs and unfortunately as we've seen time and time again that truth just the, the mainstream media isn't really that interested in that truth i mean casper if i could put this to you 
You've obviously got a quite, you know, broad sense of the history of film and television. And from my perspective, as um, a propaganda stan, I can't remember a time before it. So I was brought up watching The Bill and I also really liked to touch a frost for some reason. I just thought he was very like grandfatherly. He was one of my faves. Um, but I can't remember a time before police dramas on television even though the tastes around them have changed a lot so is that broadly true has it been the case that as long as we've had film and later on television that we've also had it being used as a vehicle for propaganda or is it a more recent invention i think it's a more recent convention although i wouldn't be certain when there was when this um, when it got stronger, as it were, this kind of propaganda uh, bent in our media. But suddenly, you see police officers right at the early days of film, and in the early days of film, police officers are essentially a kind of punch and Judy figure, and they're quite interesting there because you know if you think about the police officers that Charlie Chaplin was kicking the asses of quite literally in his early movies. Those are figures of incompetence rather than evil, and they're certainly, um, you know, uh, not fleshed out characters. So they're really just a trope, a figure, um, and they suggest a kind of microcosm of the police as a necessary figure, a corollary to crime that keeps being committed. And, And so they essentially form this kind of unit that you see repeating itself over and over again. The copper does the crime, the crime, the police officer goes after the, um, sorry, the criminal does the crime, the police officer goes after the criminal, and then, you know, it just keeps repeating itself ad infinitum. Um, and then um, I think as films got more expansive and our understanding and characterization were able to deepen, um, you start to see that the police receives a more favourable kind of uh, portrayal in films. Um, and that figure of the of the bumbling cop, you can certainly see in film noir as, as um, Demar moves on. Um, but actual, actual propaganda and that portrayal of kind of action films, I would cite as starting um, with television particularly um, and the rise of the blockbuster uh, specifically because um, before then the idea of action films didn't really exist and cops as action figures uh, was uh, the idea of that was abetted I think by the rise of bigger films Could you comment on what's been happening in uh, in Congress and in terms of legislation around uh, uh, police abuse and uh, uh, police reform? Uh, clearly, there was a lot of expectation uh, last year and until uh, the beginning of this year that there will be substantive change, but so much of it has uh, fit, uh, fizzled out in terms of the refusal of, of Congress to be able to reach some kind of a, a real new legislation. What do you think needs well, to be done by those who are advocating abolition or or systemic reform? Well, the first thing that I would want to say is just my deepest sympathies to the family of George Floyd, who was given so many promises by Joe Biden, by other congressional leaders, that they would achieve police reform in the name of the person that they love. And it's honestly heartbreaking to see, to watch politicians 
use families of victims of police violence to champion legislation that wouldn't have even saved the lives of the person that they lost. So I first just am, I'm always just so sad that families are used in this way to push an ineffective political agenda, right? So the George Floyd Act was touted by President Biden and other congressional leaders as an attempt to, you know, eradicate bias and police and policing. But the issue is that George Floyd was initially stopped by Derek Chauvin over an alleged use of a counterfeit $20 bill. Congress had the opportunity to give people more resources during an unprecedented pandemic where unemployment rates were through the roof. We were facing a massive eviction crisis. Food insecurity was at, was at its peak, right? So instead of giving people resources, giving us more stipends, making sure that we were protected, we lost our jobs, lost our homes, lost our health care. Instead, they chose to invest in police. And when someone called the cops on George Floyd, he was met with the level of brutality that police regularly and routinely employ in poor Black communities. And the idea that you could just use a past one act to train police to better encounter people who may be breaking the law to survive is just woefully insufficient. So abolition are interested in reducing the reasons why people need police in addition to reducing the carceral state, which means at the national level, fighting for a sweeping legislation that makes sure that people have not just food security or housing security, but quality investments in those institutions as well. As while we fight for student debt cancellation, as while we fight for universal health care, as while we fight for universal child care and daycare, so that people who are in vulnerable situations, they can go to work, they can go to school, they can choose to um, have work that gives them dignity and excitement, right? Like that's the kind of work that we're fighting for. And I believe that is well within our reach. I want to go to chapter eight of your book. It's about the climate. It's titled, We Only Want the Earth. On the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in August, uh, Hurricane Ida left thousands without power, many stranded in Louisiana in its aftermath. I want to turn to a clip of the New Orleans police chief, Sean Ferguson, at a news conference for emergency preparations. We are prepared to assist with every recovery efforts we will have to uh assist with after this, but also anti-looting. We will not permit, we will not allow any looting throughout this process. And and we will be out there to enforce that. So as I'm asking and begging and pleading with you, please hunker down now as we will have to hunker down at some point in time ourselves. So that's the New Orleans police chief. If you can respond to what he said, talk about the issue of the climate and how it relates to abolition and also what we've seen along the border, you know, the whipping of Haitians in Del Rio, Texas. Of course. Well, as our climate continues to heat because of global capitalism, one thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be a continuing of mass displacement of black, brown people all over the world. And once that displacement happens, the police are going to be the number one response to punish them, to whip them even, to incarcerate them. And so abolition and, and climate change are indispensable conversations that we have to have alongside each other. I learned from critical resistance that in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, where the city was just absolutely devastated by a hurricane, 
the very first thing that was built was a jail. And it was a jail that was used to arrest people. When we think about the jails that are in Puerto Rico, where are they positioned, right? They're positioned at the periphery of that island. So when there are hurricanes that happen, they're immediately flooded. You have people who are incarcerated, who suffer a, a massive flooding, you know, but, um, they're vulnerable to drowning, disease, vermin. If you look at any of the um, historical shifts and patterns of people who are migrating and immigrating to the U.S., who are fleeing, fleeing, fleeing rather, climate catastrophe, they're met with border patrol and ICE. And so the police are going to be the default response to mitigate the impact of, of climate change and environmental racism. Uh, I want to ask you about the uh, the aftermath of the Michael Brown killing uh, back in 2014, uh, arguably the, a key flashpoint in the development of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, uh, seven years later, uh, what do you make of whatever reforms or changes occurred in Ferguson and with the Ferguson Police Department? Well, there's an organization right now who is still fighting to put pressure on the Ferguson Police Department to implement many of the very weak reforms that came as a result of the consent decree that was put into place under the Obama administration. So seven years, you have people at Ferguson who are still fighting to eliminate, you know, cases of people who had outstanding warrants for nearly a decade ago. You have a few um, Black elected officials at Ferguson now, which I think could be a, a step forward because many of them are trying to figure out how to reduce the level of violence. But police are still there to serve the purpose of policing. They're still enforcing the eviction. They're still ticketing people who live in that community. They're doing it maybe more nicely. Maybe more brown people are doing it. But essentially, the day-to-day function of the Ferguson Police Department, is, it, it's, it's the same. And so it's not that we just have to fight the unconstitutional policing that's taking place or in the country. As we see in Ferguson, much of that policing is completely constitutional. And I just am grateful that long after the cameras have left, that there are people in that neighborhood, people in those neighborhoods who are fighting to continue to limit the power that the Ferguson Police Department has. We're all speaking here in New York. Uh, It's clear the next uh, mayor will be uh, Eric Adams, a former police officer, who really has rejected the idea of prison police abolition. Very simply, in the last seconds we have, your response, Derricka. Of course he does. Black political officials, black people who want it for office, they get to do this. They get to say, I'm black and I'm a part of law enforcement. I understand both sides. And unfortunately, they just create more legitimacy for the police to do very bad things to harmful people. So I would just ask people to not be fooled by black people who say they understand both sides because there is no both sides. There is a system of oppression where people have the power to kill, to incarcerate, and to arrest. There are people who are vulnerable to it, and the people have to resist that. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention, and unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. 
We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. So we want to begin the discussion, as we've been talking about earlier on the show, with the somewhat abstract question of how crimes, quote-unquote crime, is broadly understood. You've obviously attempted to problematize, to use a grad school term, to problematize <laughs> this concept before. But specifically, I want to talk about how it's sort of done in a pop way, both in terms of how the police do it and therefore the media, right? The sort of media definition of crime follows from what the police and FBI definition is. Before we begin, I kind of want to talk about how we sort of generally understand that concept. You wrote in Current Affairs last year, quote, the data and reporting about crime comes from police themselves. Police are not some objective body. Neutrality, enforcing the law. Not only do they choose to look for some crimes committed by some people in some neighborhoods some of the time, but they have political incentives to manipulate the data they collect and not to collect other data at all. Vice's motherboard just published an article on July 26, 2021, that very clearly laid out that shot spotter which is a technology used by police to allegedly hear gunshots has been used in hundreds of convictions. And turns out that there's widespread fraud where they will make up or act like something's a gunshot to satisfy the needs of police. So somewhat topically, (laughs) that news came out today. I want to talk about our concept of crime, where the crime data comes from specifically, and how we kind of broadly understand that term when we hear crime surges, crime this, crime that. I think this is absolutely essential. And it's a great place to start. I mean, the very notion of what constitutes a quote-unquote crime is determined by powerful people, people who have power in societies across the world and throughout our own history here in this country have always changed the definition of what is criminal to suit their own interests. A classic example is it didn't used to be criminal to possess marijuana. The marijuana plant was not criminalized until it became useful for very powerful people to give police more discretion to arrest people. And that was associated with a desire by powerful people to give police more tools to track down, cage, arrest, and potentially deport Mexican-American immigrants. The same is true with opium. Powerful people decided to give this police the discretion to arrest people for possessing the opium substance, to give them more power over Chinese-American immigrants. The same is true with cocaine and black Americans. Powerful people decided to make that criminal. It didn't used to be criminal. It was decided to be made criminal precisely so they could give police more discretion to surveil and track and arrest and cage and then profit off the labor of black Americans after the Civil War. The same concept is true across the concept of crime. So for example, wagering in the streets over dice is a crime. Who wagers in the streets over dice? Mostly poor people. But wagering over international currencies or the global supply of wheat, not a crime. In fact, people who wager on those things make billions of dollars and have their names on the wings of hospitals and museums. Or housing discrimination, it's not seen as a crime. Or sexual harassment at work, these are things that cause a lot of harm, but that our society has chosen to deal with in a civil context and not a criminal context. Another example might be campaign contributions. Some countries, and and indeed different times in this country's history, you might consider the current political funding system as bribery, the crime of bribery. We have legalized it. 
in this country, invading foreign countries, drone strikes, refusing to offer medicine to people or insulin to people who need it. Those could all be considered crimes. And at different times and places in our country's history, different things have been crimes like refusing to give someone an abortion or giving someone an abortion or refusing to join a union or joining a union. I guess the first point I want to make is that so much of what we think of as criminal is actually just political choices made by people in power. I think a second topic we should talk about, though, is that of the things that are criminalized, the police only search for those crimes in some places, Mm -hmm. some of the time. And the, the way they make decisions over where to look for those crimes is actually even more important. So, for example, wage theft is a crime. Wage theft costs about 50 to $100 billion a year. But who commits wage theft? It's wealthy, large employers, corporations. It's almost never enforced by any police department or prosecutor's office in the country, even though, by conservative estimates, it costs as much money and damage by about a factor of five as all robbery, burglary, larceny, shoplifting, all property crimes combined. And then tax evasion costs about a trillion dollars a year. This is a crime that's committed by wealthy people. It's 20 times the damage of wage theft and about 100 times the damage of all other property crime combined, almost never enforced. Mm -hmm. Sexual assault laws are almost never enforced while police gorge themselves on drug arrests, etc. Constantly all over the country, they left hundreds of thousands of rape kits untested. I could go on and on. Fights in private schools, environmental pollution. There are several million environmental crimes committed every single year by companies and wealthy people in this country. They're never enforced. So I think we have to understand that background context before we have a conversation about crime. Let me just say, we have a a violent society. We have to acknowledge that. There's a lot of violence in our society every single day, not just murder, but our society is full of people harming each other. It's full of structural violence that leads to extraordinary and preventable death every single day. And the reason I do this work and the reason I care about this topic we're talking about right now is I think our society's response to this harm is fundamentally flawed in exactly the way you suggest with your question. So let me just first say, if policing made us safer, and if policing prevented murder, we'd be the safest country in the world. No society in modern recorded world history has ever spent so much money on policing and cages and prosecutors and judges, right, and courts. It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't prevent murder. In fact, there is not a single shred of evidence that increased expenditures on police prevent murder. The other thing that I want to suggest is that we should care about violence and death much more broadly than the narrow definition of murder that police are concerned with. First of all, police don't, when they're doing the murder stats, they don't count deaths in prison. They don't count deaths by police. They don't include those in the murder rates. And they also don't include all of the people that die from lack of health care, from environmental pollution, from home foreclosures. So when a bank fraudulently forecloses on a home or a landlord illegally kicks people out, we know that that actually is associated with huge increases in death. Deaths that actually dwarf the murder statistics that police rely on. And if we have a little bit of an expanded definition of preventable death, rather than the sort of very constrained definition of homicide that police departments report, I think we'd actually start to see a really different discussion about what are some of the solutions to that problem. Mm -hmm. But make no mistake, there has been increase this year in the number of police reported homicides. And I think it's important that we on the left actually talk about this issue and talk about why things like poverty and mental health care and gun sales and alienation in general from the things that connect us to other human beings and lack of access to art and music and theater and poetry and sort of 
ways of, of youth connecting to each other, these are the things that the evidence shows are actually connected to violence. And they're precisely not the things that our society is actually spending billions and billions of dollars on in every single city around the country when we talk about the way that police spend their time. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, police only spend 4% of all of their time on what they themselves call violent crime. It's even less on murder. Right. Police have almost nothing to do with that issue. I want you to talk about that other side of the ledger that never, ever, ever, ever gets talked about, right? If if the local news let off every night with a story profiling a family that was broken up by someone in county, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands of people in county jail pre-trial, whether or not they didn't, they missed their son's first softball game or they didn't pay rent and their family was evicted, whatever it is, they lost their job, they dropped out of school. We would have a totally different concept of what is crime. So I want you to talk about that side of the ledger and how it's completely erased. And that is a very loaded question, but go ahead. I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask. And I want to just stop for a second and remember a few years ago when Trump was, was you know, separating families at the border, much of liberal America was outraged. They adopted this phrase, kids in cages. Um, people were outraged, protesting all over the place. And one thing that a lot of people didn't really fully appreciate at the time is that There are 3,163 local jails in this country where we separate children from their parents every single day. And the vast majority of people in those jails are separated from their children only because their parents can't pay a cash bail. That is how our legal system, police, prosecutors, judges, that is how our police sort of bureaucracy decides who should be with their children at home and who should be stuck in a cage of squalor and filth with no sunlight and exercise and fresh air and infectious disease and sexual assault. And so take something like the war on drugs. If you look at the costs of the war on drugs, not only has it been trillions of dollars over the last 40 years, but it caused over 50 million people to be caged, about 20 million people from marijuana possession alone, tens of millions of children separated from their parents, hundreds of millions of police stopping and searching and probing people's bodies, including millions of times that police probe people's anuses and genitals for drugs. Not only did we cost tens of millions of people their education, their homes, and their ability to make a living. We also caused tens of millions of square acres of pristine land throughout Latin America to be spray poisoned. We surveilled the communications of billions of people around the globe. We basically eradicated the privacy in the Fourth Amendment. I could keep going on, right? There's many, many consequences. But maybe the most profound one is that we sentenced human beings to hundreds of millions of years in cages. And at the end of the day, after all of that, 40 years into the war on drugs, drug usage rates are higher in much of the country. Drug deaths are way higher than they used to be. Children are using dangerous drugs at higher rates. And all of this, mind you, while we legalize tobacco, which kills 450,000 human beings every single year, and alcohol, right? So there's there's very particular political choices being made. But, but we engage in this war on drugs with all of those costs. And for all of the policing and prosecution and human caging, we actually made things worse. And we fundamentally need to get people to understand that police and cages and coercion and child and family separation are never going to make us safer as a society, ever. Yeah, so here's the thing. I I agree with Casper in that I think that 
you know, fundamentally what we need to look at here is what they are operating within still and under still is this premise, this idea that the police are good, that these structures that the police uphold and are part of are good and are a force for good and can ever be a force for good. Now, what I think is interesting here is that I will, you know, I will, I will, pre- I will preface this by saying ACAB is an important political point and it is one that I completely agree with. But I also think what we need to understand is that there are people who go into the police force, who become police officers, because they believe that it can do good, that they can do good in society through it. And so what I think that people like Hastings show is that within this system, this rotten system, which is unsalvageable, no matter how many Hastings you have within it, no matter how many law-abiding cops you have within it, this system is built to oppress, it is built built to denigrate, it is built to uphold a structure of laws that were written and constructed to uh, continue the grasp of capital and power with a very small elite and to batter down the working classes. But what call of duty, call of duty, line of duty. What, <laughs> mate, it's been a very that's, long... that's a different form of like manufacturing consent <laughs> for state violence. That's a different <laughs> one. I was doing so good then too. Like what line of duty I think does is raises quite important political questions for people that are considering these questions right now around what you do with the people that are in the police who believe that they're doing something good because then that enters into the wider problem that we have with the police force, which is that they essentially, they believe their own hype. They believe their own story. They believe that what they are doing, it is a cult. It's a weird little cult. And that's why you have all of these 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 people protecting the corrupt officers. That's why at the end, when you had this, the commissioner, superintendent, whatever he was, that sketchy lad, the Welsh one, who was like, there is no corruption here. He was covering it all up because they believe, they fundamentally believe that they are a force for good. And how do you deconstruct that? How do you even begin to get people out of that cult? Is a question that we need to start thinking about. We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, breaking down the recent propaganda article published in the New York Times. Serious Inquiries Only discussed the recent study revealing that police killings are undercounted by more than half. Novara Media looked at propaganda in pop culture. Democracy Now! discussed the failures of attempts at police reform thus far. Citations Needed took a 10,000-foot view on the definition of crime, the political decisions made by powerful people to define crime, and the insufficiency of our limited focus on homicide as opposed to preventable deaths, and Novara Media described policing as a cult. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Serious Inquiries Only giving more details about the findings of the undercounted police killings and who, what, why, diving into some of the Supreme Court decisions that have shaped criminal justice law, as well as the societal pressures that push Supreme Court justices to side with the police and against the rights of the accused. 
To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I wanted to call in and say thank you. This is less about an individual episode and more about uh, collective episodes. I want to say thank you because one, Best of the Left podcast has been great throughout the pandemic. But from a personal level, Uh, This past summer and into the end of this last spring, I've been doing a lot of overtime. I work in the medical field, not in a hospital. I actually work for a uh, manufacturer of medical equipment, and uh, things have been crazy. (laughs) Things have been a bit crazy these last two years. So um, we've been doing a lot of overtime, and I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, and it's including yours and the work you have done the quality of the show during these last two years has been spectacular and so i wanted to definitely give you a thanks for that i know you may think that it's nothing you know you've been doing the show for a long time that it's just a slight contribution to people's lives but there's i suspect thousands of people out there who are listening to your show working various shifts people who you'll never know people who you'll never meet who really do rely on that being published every week so i want to thank you for that i also want to give a quick shout out to all of the people working in the medical field the doctors the nurses the technicians because they're often overlooked the um custodians the food servers all of the associated staff You know, the people who are like me, who work for the manufacturers. Guys, thank you for the work that you've done these last couple of years. Hopefully we're at the end of all this. I love all of you. Jay, keep up the great work, man. God bless. Peace. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. And thanks, as always, to V for his kind comments. Uh, We always love hearing from him and share his sentiments about all the workers putting in extra time these past couple of years. Now, today's episode, and one part in particular, reminded me of an email I got last year, last summer, from an anonymous police officer who wrote in during the summer of 2020 as the protests following George Floyd's murder were happening. And I was reminded of this email when listening to the clip that it was the last segment before the members-only material. It was the one saying that policing is a cult. And to be clear, I'm not going to play this message from this police officer as some sort of counterpoint to, you know, humanize police officers and say, no, look, they're not in a cult. This is a real person with real perspectives. No, 
I'm going to play it because actually, I think that what this officer has to say supports the theory of policing being like a cult as seen from the inside. So with that in mind, have a listen. It's a pretty dark time. There are some of us acting as a light of reason in the darkness, but as you could imagine, it's lonely. The pressure from outside upon those of us within to either quit and protest or take some sort of action is palpable even though I work in a relatively progressive agency with a good relationship with our community. Even so, I often feel ashamed of what my job represents to so many. People in my uniform have killed so many unnecessarily, and I do not know what will stop it. As far as whether or not the good ones should remain or somehow risk their careers, and likely freedom, depending on the method of resistance, depends on your view of gradualism. Is it better for a leftist to be in a position of power within a broken system, doing what she can to lessen the damage wrought upon society? Is it better to have just a little less violence? Or is it better to quit and leave a purely evil nemesis? How will all the good ones unify under intense financial, familial, and cultural pressure? Most cops' only friends are only other cops. Policing is as insular as any occupation you can imagine. It happens mostly because of a shared understanding of the stress of watching horrible things happen to people. Few outsiders could act as a sufficient support system. Conversely, it is incredibly hard to speak up or leave when your families and friends are so intertwined in police culture. Should one leave, what other occupation do our skill sets translate to? $8 an hour security guard. Mercenary work for Blackwater. Personal protection for some rich oligarch. Not exactly soul-enriching, rewarding work. We have bills like everyone, as well as kids who need health care. Yes, we are laborers who are kept obedient by the threat of losing our health care just like everyone. Hashtag Medicare for all. Even if all the good ones left the force, what is the end game? Urge all good police officers to leave so as to accelerate the downfall of the current criminal justice system. Leave nothing but the worst of the worst on the job. That would lead to more deaths in the pursuit of a possible positive outcome. How would we prevent a violent revolution, which white supremacists would embrace as a race war? The tranquilizing drug of gradualism has failed for five decades. That said, I don't want to see any more violence wrought upon anyone, be it someone in police custody, police officers, or in the streets. But I have no idea what to do, other than influence and discipline those in my circle of control and report wrongdoing whenever I see it. As soon as I can do something else with my life and still meet my other responsibilities, I will. So that was obviously a relatively progressive perspective coming from inside a police force, not the average perspective by any means, I don't think. But it is a real perspective from inside the police force. And as I said, I think it supports the notion of the profession of policing as sharing similar aspects with the mechanics of how cults work. And to demonstrate, listen to this short segment from the Netflix documentary about flat earthers behind the curve. What you're about to hear is flat earth believers in their own words, describing how they feel about their beliefs and what it has cost to them to hold those beliefs. I was so frustrated about getting told I was an idiot. So I decided to say, laugh at me all you want, because science is different than the shit they're believing. I've already lost friends and stuff. I've shared it with my mother, my daughter, uh, two guys who I was dating who didn't want to date me anymore after I told them about my belief in the flat earth. You know, I have uh, four children, my sons are grown, them and their mother, who's my ex-wife, kind of think dad's a little off, gone off his rocker. I um, just finalized the divorce, I no longer speak to my parents, my brother, or anybody else, other than people that are interested in doing truth, truth research. And you would say to yourself, well, 
Why would you pursue something if you're going to have a falling out with your blood relatives? What's important is truth. People give you strange looks, that's fine. If you're not hurting them, let them think what you want. They're just asleep, going through life. They're just background noise. When this all started, I was looking for the truth. You guys know that. And deep down inside, I think everybody knows that it's flat. It's their escape. I'm in a room with people that absolutely will not judge me. So many of you have been through so much pain. My entire life, I've kind of felt separate, like nothing was quite right. We never really fit in. We find ourselves to be somewhat isolated. And um, we want to talk to people about this thing, but nobody wants to talk to us. In The Truman Show, a big reason why the lead character left when he discovered his entire world was fake was he had nothing to lose. Jim Carrey was inevitably going to leave that place because there was nothing for him inside. Compare that with anyone else. Let's say we'll go to the other end, which would be the mayor of that town. Let's say the mayor of that town got in a sailboat and got out to the edge. The guy's got limos, the guy's got mistresses, he's got money, he's got a pretty cushy life. Does he open the door and face the devil you don't know versus the devil you know? No. Wouldn't you say, in a sense though, like you're now the mayor of Flat Earth? Say you lose faith in this thing. What then happens to my personal relationships? And what's the benefit of me of doing that? Will the mainstream people welcome me back? No, they couldn't care less. But have I now lost all my friends in this community? Yes. So suddenly you're doubly isolated. If I tried to go, there would be so many people. They would come and say, don't, don't, don't do it. And so I couldn't leave if I wanted to. So I'm sure you heard the parallels as clearly as I did, but just to lay it out, Financial and social entrapment are both key elements of cults, and that's what we just heard from the documentary, and our anonymous police officer. They both said essentially the same things about these structural impediments to leaving a system once you are inside of that system. And just to be clear, I am not making this comparison because I have an equal amount of concern and empathy for a progressive police officer trapped in a harmful profession as I do for the victims of the harm his profession perpetuates. I just have a strong interest in really understanding the nuts and bolts of how the world works, including how people who even have misgivings about policing, still get sucked in and feel that they can't get out. However, it is not enough to just understand police officers as trapped or duped into believing that they're a force for good. This analogy actually goes farther when you begin to think about how people become true believers, those who don't feel trapped, but genuinely revere the police force, sort of relish being a part of it. And to get to that point, you have to be told the kinds of stories that we have heard on the show today, that propaganda that constantly bolsters the idea of the police as not only beneficial, but also as the underdogs, this beleaguered force for good under assault by the forces of evil and chaos, you know? Why else would chance for Black Lives Matter be met with Blue Lives Matter and the raising of thin blue line American flags. 
as I have said for years, no one ever thinks of themselves as the bad guy. Darth Vader was just trying to bring peace and order to the galaxy, and things got a little out of control. So back to the Flat Earthers. It becomes a question of identity. Um, who am I in this world? And I can define myself through this struggle. This is somewhat of a battle, uh, more or less between good and evil. We're actually very special, and we start to realize that there is a purpose to our life. You're forced to be reckoned with, so we need to take you seriously. Then that makes you the protagonist. And it's very enticing. Once you get into it, it feels great to be the underdog protagonist in a Disney movie. Everything you do is justified. And when people mock you, well, that's because they're evil. When people try to prove you wrong, when they do prove you wrong, you quickly say, well, there you go. There's the evil. You know, no one's Ursula and their own story. Once you're the protagonist, you become the hero, and everything you do becomes justified. I mean, how much does that resonate with the conversation about policing in America? So I'll, I'll wrap up with this. On the most recent bonus episode that we recorded, it hasn't come out yet. We're polishing it before publication. But we got talking about the concept of hostile architecture. And this is the idea of, like, you will recognize it as benches that are comfortable to sit on, but not comfortable to lie on. They build them in such a way that if you lied on them, you'd, you know, have something poking in your back, or there's an armrest in the way, or something like that. Or in, in public parks, they'll put little metal blocks along cement curbs to prevent skaters from sliding on them, that sort of thing. So this is hostile architecture. It is architecture that is designed to prevent something from happening to or around that architecture. And when I got thinking about this, I realized that it is an unbelievably good metaphor for the difference between what is fundamentally conservative policymaking and progressive policymaking. Hostile architecture is about treating the symptoms of a problem with prohibition and enforcement. You don't want kids skating on public property? Prohibit it and enforce it. You don't want unhoused people sleeping on public benches? Prohibit it and enforce it. You don't want people doing drugs? Prohibit and enforce. Skate parks, as an example, on the other hand, are the antithesis of hostile architecture. They are about solving the root of the problem, giving kids a place to go and play so that no prohibition measures are even necessary. Same goes for housing the unhoused and solving the underlying issues that lead to drug abuse. Policing is built on hundreds of years of prohibiting and enforcing that which the powerful do not want to exist. The police abolition movement is built on giving people what they need to thrive in life so that our current style of prohibition and enforcement isn't even necessary. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, like where I initiated the conversation about hostile architecture. 
in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com